Amen. It's good to be with you and see each and every one of you today as we approach a a glorious text, but one that uh, we need to tread very carefully as we peer into it. But before we start, I want to read one scripture for us, Galatians 3.13. Paul says to the church there, Christ redeemed, he ransomed, he rescued. He rescued us from the curse, from condemnation, from the doom of the law. Having become a curse, having become a doomed one for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing that that seed, that bountiful gift of Abraham might come to the Gentiles to come to us so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So let's pray and seek the Lord's help, seek the Spirit's illumination as we open this text today and predominantly in Matthew 27. Father of glory, of light, and power that you have revealed to us in the work accomplished on the cross with your very Son. Lord, I pray that you would revive and refresh our ears, our eyes of faith, and our hearts with the illuminating power of your Spirit today as we look at all We can't exhaust it by any means, but look at all that Christ has done on our behalf. This pinnacle, this epitome of history, this unsurpassed suffering that we might be shown pity and mercy where he took on your wrath and abandonment. So, Father, humble our hearts, open our hearts to your truth, and Bless us today with your presence and instruction in Jesus' holy name. We're going to focus primarily on the Matthew 27 account, but I put all three of the synoptic gospel accounts of this particular verse. Of course, it goes on, but we're looking primarily at Matthew 27, 45 to 46. Matthew 27, 45 to 46. Word of God says, Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Matthew uses the Hebrew Eli. Mark uses the Aramaic Eloi. Eloi, both having the same meaning, same context of my God, my God. There are, from historical accounts, um, estimated nearly 30,000 crucifixions took place under Roman rule in the time of Christ. And this was just in Palestine alone. But how many specific accounts can we do we know of, of a certain person that we have recorded for us of any of these crucifixions? 
Very likely some of those who were put to death were martyrs. We know Peter was, the, the story is that he was crucified upside down, but that was after t- Christ's time of crucifixion. Some of these were innocent, but most were guilty of all the insurrections they attempted to overthrow the Roman rule and free the Jewish people from the oppression. But just to consider and, and, and contemplate this, that only one man crucified was truly innocent, and his name was above all names, and his name especially, his life especially, was recorded for us to remember. Jesus Christ the righteous. So when the Messiah entered into the world as a baby, as God incarnate, this newborn man we have in Luke 2, this this glorious account that while they were there, this being Joseph and Mary, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. What a contrast now at the end of his earthly ministry in today's context, a completely different account, not one of radiant glory with angelic multitudes singing, but one now of total darkness and which the angels silently looked into, as we should. But we, what we looked at last week in the account leading up to and, and, and of Jesus' crucifixion. Mark 15.25 records very specifically that Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. in the morning, the third hour, Roman clock, 6 a.m. being zero hour, not midnight, but 9 a.m. in the morning after nearly a full night of accusations driven by a diabolical force having its hour of its own wicked darkness, after a night of no sleep, and now an early morning of unimaginable, excruciating physical torment, Jesus was then led up and nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. And while he hung on the cross, bearing all the wicked verbal and physical abuse, succumbing to, to the ghastly torment of the nails and suffocation, what did we hear last week? A prayer, right? His first prayer. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And at the hearing of these divine words from the Son of God on the cross, one of the thieves, enabled by the effective, the efficacious grace of God, which is lavished on all of God's elect, what did he say? First word. Jesus. You recognize, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And immediately Christ's response was with an emphatic truth. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. Shortly after this glorious 
salvific event, this promise. We see in John's account, Jesus turns while he's on the cross, looking at his mother, Mary, looking at the apostle John. He says, woman, behold your son. To John, behold your mother. Now ushering her under his care. Even caring for his own family in the midst of this torment. Then there was silence. We don't have anything else recorded. But even in the midst of the jeering crowd and and the extreme physical anguish, this silence really manifested Jesus' faith in his Father. And it is this silence that adds so much weight to his next prayer that we're going to look at. And we should know, you, you probably know this, we need to remember that Jesus' crucifixion was at the time of Passover, right? And there was always, it was scheduled, Passover was always scheduled with what lunar sequence? Full moon, right? Right? So when we read these accounts in all three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use pretty much the same phrase. Now from the sixth hour, which is noon, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And this is, in Matthew's account, this is the first of five miraculous events that he documents, he captures for us. But that specifically when the next three hours of the crucifixion began, darkness fell. This darkness, apart from any supposed scientific investigation, did not have any relationship to the rotational and orbital paths of the sun, the earth, and the moon, meaning there was no eclipse. This was not a full eclipse of the sun. Eclipses don't last for three hours. But it means that this darkness fell or that its coming into being, its, its suddenness, was an event from a point of origin, okay? It happened because of it was invoked by somebody or something other than the natural orbits and rotations. That origin, as we know of, that source was only from the supernatural realm of the Heavenly Father. No longer the hour of darkness for the enemy. His time was up. Up until this point, He had his time. He thought he had accomplished his task. Now it was God's hour. This darkness was brought about by the Father. And and the full comedy staged by all these sinful, wicked men ends in a very dramatic, very powerful, very abrupt way. So being noon, high noon, sun at its apex, darkness fell over the whole land. We don't know for sure, it doesn't say in scripture, which is going to be our point of reference, if it was the whole land of meaning the whole earth or a localized event over the nation of Israel. But this darkness had very strong impact and bearing in the minds of the Jews. Can you think of, can you remember from scripture any other accounts where darkness being associated with God's work, his doing, or his presence. Exodus, any particular one? There's two good ones. <laughs> Take your pick. In Egypt, right. 
And what was that darkness light like? They, they could feel it, right? Yeah. And they couldn't even see. How long did it last? Three days. Interesting. Um, another interesting point is in Genesis 15, 12, where God appeared to Abraham, establishing his covenant. He caused a deep sleep to fall on Abraham, and it says, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And in Exodus 19:16, when God appeared at Sinai, he came in the morning, but with thick cloud, darkness. And also the minor prophets, they speak of God's darkness as, as his divine judgment. But just to look briefly ahead for a moment, in the context of this crucifixion, the question I ask, how do we know that this darkness of this crucifixion had an impact on the Jews? In Luke, in his account, in chapter 23, 48, it says, all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts, banging on their chest, meaning for them, this was great sorrow. There was an awareness there was a mourning over what had just happened, all the events they had seen up to this time of the darkness of Jesus crying out of his final prayer that we'll get into next week, Lord willing. There was a sense of guilt and contrition that had struck them in this. So there was an evidence, a reality of God's judgment that this darkness was so severe, so broad in its scope and the area that many who were coming began returning, beating their breasts. So it wasn't those just present at the cross, but those who had come to see what was going on. Now, the, the Greek word used here for land, gi, can also be translated earth, or, or the surface of all the land, indicating the entire world. But like I said, we can't derive from Scripture, from the text, how widespread this darkness was, but God was able to make it according to his purpose, whether it was local or global. Interestingly enough, um, had to do some digging. There, was, there are extra-biblical accounts that suggest the darkness was worldwide. Um, Origen has a statement from a Roman historian that mentions such a darkness throughout the empire. Uh, Tertullian wrote to a pagan acquaintance about a very unusual darkness on that specific day. Um, even a report, supposed report from Pilate to Emperor Tiberius assumed that the emperor in Italy, in Rome, knew about the knowledge of this widespread darkness. And he mentioned specifically the time from 12 to 3 p.m. So it had a vast coverage, it sounds like. So Luke explains that the sun was obscured but the purpose of this darkness is not explained in the gospel accounts or anywhere else in the scriptures. But rabbis explain that the darkening of the sun in the Babylonian Talmud as a great judgment of God and, and for unusually heinous sin. And some interpreters have actually tried to propose that this darkness was a type of veil that God cast over the sufferings of Christ so that we would not see them. There probably is some credence to that, but 
It's not a covering of sympathy for his son's dishonor or nakedness. And we're going to see more of what was going on here in a minute. However, in light of the scriptural teachings, the scriptural events, it gives credence to the reality that the darkness was indeed an act. It was a mark of divine judgment being carried out. A lot like what Isaiah gives account to in Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 13 about Syria bringing darkness and distress over the land and even an eschatological um, application of the stars and their constellations not bringing forth light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not give its light. So we see from this darkness there is an act of divine judgment going on. Right. Right. And that's more future than Christ, but that God's power, God's doing, right? So the darkness of Calvary did not represent an absence of God, right? But his very holy, terrifying presence. It's as the Father descended in judgment on Golgotha, and really in a soteriological sense, as his means of bringing out salvation, he unleashes his righteous and holy fury, not on sinners, not on any sinner present, but against the soul sin bearer, where the full weight of, of the Father's wrath in, in its exceeding greatness and its eternal impact really were, were all the infinite and, and eternal tortures of hell, of its darkness, of its guilt, of its pain, its loss, its shame, its forsakenness, was poured out in this finite period of time upon the Son, His Son. Briefly, why? Think about this. Why? Well, it, it's according to His decreed plan, isn't it? Is it not? At that, that the pinnacle, this pinnacle moment of his plan, that this perfectly innocent, spotless, eternal Lamb of God would be the only suitable sacrifice for our sin, so that any sinner now can come to him and receive the justification accomplished through this crucifixion. Any questions, any thoughts so far? So for three hours in our finite world, three hours in our time, it doesn't seem like much, right? The eternal son endured an eternity's weight of wrath, of, of punishment, so that those who trust in him can now know eternal life. But when the father's wrath had been completed, when all the eternal crushing weight and judgment was satisfied, it says about the ninth hour, about three o'clock, Jesus cried. Not a, not a whimper, not a simple statement, but under the weight of supernatural wrath and crushing and enduring the phenomenal spiritual pain, he cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God. And here's the key part. Why have you forsaken me? 
was it the bearing of the sin that caused Jesus to cry out like this? Was it the nails? Was it the ripped flesh on his back? Was it the mocking? Was it the false accusations? Was it the suffocation? Was it the thorns? Now, why have you forsaken me? What do these words remind us of from the standpoint of one under judgment? Not prophetically, but one under judgment. What I mean is, For the repentant sinner who believes in Christ, these words are extremely precious and extremely valuable. For anyone outside of Christ, these will be your cry before the judge one day. If you don't repent and believe. It's a (laughs) tough mental challenge for us to consider that he who was God manifested in the flesh should allow himself to be so treated by his enemies. But it's exceedingly strange that the father who delighted in his son, who declared from heaven itself, parted the heavens and declared with his own voice, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, should now deliver him up to such a shameful death and then forsake and abandon him. But what does it mean here to be forsaken, to be abandoned? Any thoughts? If you were forsaken, how would you feel? Grieving? Sad? Fearful? Overly anxious? Exactly. Remember, Christ is actually singing Psalm 22 here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night I have no rest, yet you are holy. You who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Did the Father's love for the Son stop at this moment of judgment? No, 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 okay. You're right. Could there ever be a time where that intra-Trinitarian love would ever be broken or ceased or diminished or waver at any point? Absolutely not. There was never a time when that love was challenged or threatened or diminished. God loved this consummate act of obedience by his son, did he not? Isn't this what he was to come and accomplish? It Wasn't this his true fulfillment of coming to seek and to save, to serve? And was not God pleased with his son's adherence to his will? 
why was he forsaken? Why was he abandoned? I was introduced to a theologian this week studying Herman Vitsius, spelled W-I-T-S-I-U-S. I'm going to buy his works. <laughs> he has a whole volume on the prayers of Christ, which I sadly just found out about this week. But he, he looks at this. He addresses this briefly, but it, it gives us some insight here of the possibility that the father's love for his son on the cross diminished or wavered or left. He says, on the contrary, he, Jesus, never pleased the father more than when he showed himself obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. For this is that excellent, that incomparable, that almost incredible obedience which the Father recompensed with a suitable reward of ineffable glory. So there, there could never be a breakdown in the divine love between the Father and the Son because this would mean a breakdown and the divine intra-Trinitarian nature itself, which would then undermine all the original premise of absolute divine power, divine sovereignty, and salvation. But how do we explain these words of dereliction, of being forsaken, of being abandoned? And this is where we have to tread very carefully. We, we don't see in any scriptural account any point where Jesus ever wavered in his faith or his faithfulness to his Father, to his will, to his mission. He fully entrusted himself to his Father in the fullness of his humanity, the weakness of his own flesh, and to his mission. He had fully entrusted himself to his Father's perfectly, eternally decreed will. Even when learning obedience through what he had to suffer and endure. But what Jesus learned and knew through the scriptures and through communion with his Father and through prayer and by the revelation of the Holy Spirit upon him because he was daily, hourly in need of the Spirit's presence and power. Correct? just as we are. He knew and learned that the Father's love could never be extinguished or diminished in any sense. And just a brief thought here when, when preparing this, what about in our walk of faith and belief in God's love for us? Do we ever feel an acute sense of abandonment, of, of distance, of we have been forsaken in some way for a short duration of time. And are our cries for help and rescue and comfort real and significant? But how much more now the cry of the eternal son who experienced a very real sense of his father's abandonment, forsakenment, forsaking. So think about the word forsaken for a moment. I was just looking at some news pictures this week about the folks on the beach in Bahamas nowhere to go. I mean, everything's gone. Um, a Baptist church completely wiped out with bodies still in the, in the aftermath seeking hope there, but aban they feel abandoned. Um, 
same way, I mean, just if, if a husband should forsake and leave his wife or children being abandoned by their parents, these are horrible, truly horrible experiences. But for any creature, any man, any woman, any child forsaken by their creator, this is one of the most frightful and most tragic words in all of human speech. So how much more for the Son of God to cry out in his plea, this, this prayer in a loud voice for us to hear, to suffer the greatest agony of all he had to endure up to this point, of that of his father's hiding his face, his enduring through the sad providence, his frowning providence upon him. Um, he was truly facing the fullness of the curse that had been placed upon him. And Isaiah prophesied correctly, he, he was cut off from the land of the living. But while this precious prayer, these words of Christ are extremely important in their, their appalling sorrow, their deep mystery, evoking deep sympathy and, and profound solemnity, we're not to be ignorant of their meaning, both in the, in, in the fullest manifestation of divine love that the Father and the Son have, what has been displayed to man, to man, and their most awe-inspiring display of God's inexhaustible justice. So Jesus being forsaken by the Father was not a separation of nature or essence or substance. Jesus did not in any sense or degree cease to exist as God or as a member of the Trinity, nor did he cease to exist as Son, any more than when any of our children would sin against us, that they would cease to be our children. However, Jesus did cease to know for this time the intimacy and the fellowship of his Father. And, and in a careful, comparable sense, it's just when our children, or close one to us, disobeys, there ceases for a time to be that intimate, loving fellowship. Jesus was only separated in his incarnation from the divine glory presence and the face-to-face -face communication with his Father. Remember, he set those aside. And now, at the cross, his separation from the Father became ever so profound that, in his, that his human, humility in his incarnation and his earthly life, this separation of the Father's you know, fellowship and intimacy was even more profound than the humility he suffered by setting aside his glory. But as I said, this, this mystery of separation is far too deep for the most advanced theologian, believer, however mature you are. But God has revealed this, this basic truth for us to accept with, with the help of the Spirit and nowhere in the scriptures can we behold the reality of Jesus' sacrificial death and, and the anguish of his separation more powerfully than in the suffering he endured on the cross because of sin. It, it was, as I said, it was not the physical anguish, not the lacerations, not the nails, not the thorns that caused him to writhe and cry out 
It was the utter and deep pain he endured at the loss of fellowship with his father. It is what our sin brought upon him that caused this. So briefly, if we, we take a look, a closer look and view of this prayer, I want to look at several perspectives here at the cross and, and Jesus' prayer as he is agonizing at this loss of fellowship. What do we see? First, we see very clearly the awfulness of sin and the nature of its wages, correct? Fullness of the midday sun in public display before everyone, the crucifixion of Christ, where we see the nature of all these things being exhibited. We see the depravity of the human heart. Man would have a preference to murder the prince of life than believe what he said. The nature and wicked intent of the devil himself, his, his deceptiveness, his hostility toward God, his enmity against the Son of God, and his power to put it into the heart of a man to betray his greatest friend and the greatest man ever known. Sin was made known, its, its baseness, its lack of moral principles, its lawlessness, in man crucifying the Son of God. And here we see, too, the wages of this sin are clearly on display, death. Not just that dreadful silence that is, that is so dormant after that last breath is drawn, or the body is motionless, when the lifeblood ceases to flow, it's more pathetic, more tragic, the wages of this sin, because it's a spiritual death. It's an eternal separation from God and all that his goodness affords us from all that is true life and joy. I'm sure some of you have heard that sermon, that message from Paul Washer. He said, the greatest thing we should be afraid of is the goodness of God. Why? Because it's out of his goodness, out of his holiness, that he has to punish sin. And if that goodness doesn't lead you to repentance, it will lead you to be a wrath bearer, right? So this wage of sin is the penal death, that separation of a soul from the presence of God. And it was only on the cross where only Christ could suffer for only his people where he could pay the full wage of this death that was due to all his people and only his people. Not having sin of any sin of his own, but bearing the fullness of our sins. Not bearing just bearing the chastisement of our peace and wages for our sins, but death. And bearing for us that due separation from God that we deserve. We also see here the absolute holiness and, and really the inflexible justice of God. It was the thrice holy God, one of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look in iniquity, who would not look upon his own son who took our iniquity, turned his face from him and forsook him. And we hear Christ confess this great holiness in the midst of his suffering from Psalm 22, yet you are holy. And only on the cross do we see the infinite malignity of sin and the justice of God 
in the means of carrying out his judgment against sin by nailing his son publicly on the cursed tree. And if you remember, too, back at Gethsemane, this is where we see Gethsemane fulfilled, right? From his incarnation and his earliest infancy, Jesus suffered from man and his threats. From the outset of his ministry, he suffered from Satan and his temptations. But at the cross, his suffering came from his father. Being bruised and crushed, it was this cup of wrath that he was to partake of and knew of and learned of in the Garden of Gethsemane, being in that place of the olive press, to know that it was this divine judgment and abandonment by his father. This is what created the depths of his agony as he prayed in Gethsemane. But we also see Christ's constant fidelity to God in the midst of his being forsaken by his father. Remember, in the fullness of his humanity, he was still left and relied upon the supports of faith in his father. Jesus' prayers went from, I know that you hear me always, to a cry, not of father, but of God. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. A prayer that acknowledged the sovereignty and the sovereign rule in all matters and God's, his father's keeping power. But, but here on the cross, Jesus fully rested on God's eternal covenant promise. And we have this cry of anguish made manifest for our benefit to see, just see how the Lord's soul itself, even in this anguish, still cleaves to God. He doesn't let go. Even in the midst of the darkness, it was to God he cried and looked and waited. And think about that when the sun is darkened on us. Think about our trust in God when we are forsaken by closest friends, family even. Do we find our rest, our hope, our strength in him who died for us? And do we cry, my God, my God, by faith and who he is and what his promises mean to us? We also find here the basis of salvation for the true Christian because it's only at the cross where our iniquity, all of our sin, all of our moral offense against God is dealt with. And in the only way that satisfies the justice of God and the only means, the only way where we have righteousness imputed to us by faith. Only here is where all of our sin is, is dealt with and it's deserved punishment and we're transferred to a suitable sacrifice found in the Lamb of God. It's only on the cross where Christ made propitiation and this propitiation is only Godward. It is him who must be satisfied. And it's only in Jesus' death, his death, that was a death of curse and that redeeming us from the curse of the law and the curse being exiled from the presence and the glory of God. We've been freed. And it's only on the cross where our sins have been born are placed on another, where God's righteous claims against us have been met and Christ was forsaken that we might enjoy his presence forever. 
And finally, we see publicly displayed here the full manifestation and evidence of Christ's love for us. John 15, 13, if you remember that, greater love has no one than this, that he do what? Lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus says, you are my friends if you obey my commandments. But more than just in his physical death and including all the unspeakable shame and all the enormous suffering, but that he took our place in being made sin for us. And the magnitude of what this involved can only be judged in the light of his person and his nature. Perfectly pure, absolutely pure. He is all that is good and holy, exchanging our sin for his righteousness. He was the, all, the holy one with a pure abhorrence, an infinite abhorrence of sin, but yet coming to take the full punishment of it for us. On the cross, he bore all of our iniquity and all of those that are his and yet to come to him. And even for us, yet our sins to come, he bore. And and even more so to consider the measure of the wrath of God that was poured out on him. This is why his soul was in anguish, in agony of that forsakenness of what he bore. And we see what this meant to him and cost him and what he bore in our place when we hear the Lord's words by the Spirit of God crying through David in the Psalms. Psalm 69 in particular, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I'll let you write that down and read the rest of that psalm later, but that whole psalm is talking about another aspect of his suffering on the cross. But this was and is love, unmatched, unmeasurable, freely given, and Christ drinking the cup of wrath and bearing the abandonment of his Father. And where sin had brought man, love brought the Savior. And finally, this cry, as I said earlier, this cry of the Savior is also a very stern warning to us. For it tells the cry and the final condition of every lost soul. It will be the soul-anguishing cry screamed out in terror for an eternity for those who don't know the saving grace and the power of the cross. They will be eternally forsaken by God. It, it is not true. It is a false gospel that is being spread today that God loves everybody, that he's just too merciful to carry out his, all these warnings and threats. There can't really be a hell. This is the same lie in the garden. Did God really say Yes, God is merciful. He has provided to all a Savior, and with this, an invitation of mercy to come to him. But if there are any present who proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior, can you not testify of God's long-suffering patience, bearing with your own stubborn rebellion, even some of us coming very close to death, and yet he has prolonged your day of grace to this moment. This is the love of God. Amen? But God's mercy does not go on forever.
There will be a closing of the door. There will be a fast closing of the door, and it's going to catch many by surprise, whether in death or in his return. But when that comes, final judgment will be executed. God will avenge the mercy that has been scorned and ignored and made light of. He will execute the sentence of condemnation quickly and without any reprieve. Because it was Christ's cry that witnesses to us God's hatred of sin, our sin, and how we are to see that even God did not spare his own son, but put him in the full extent of eternal punishment, put it all on him. How could we even possibly think we could somehow get away from this punishment apart from faith in Christ? Do we want to receive his pardon, his life, his mercy, his righteousness in exchange for what we deserve? Or do we believe that we can rest on our own works, that it's up to my schedule, that I'll get around to it? Your belief in the lives of Satan or that what you think you know more than God. Because God will, in fact, without a doubt, pour out his full wrath on anyone who dies in their sins. And he that believes on the Son will see life. But he who does not, the wrath of God abides on him. So one final closing poem. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here was a cry of desolation. Dear friend, may you never echo it. Here was a cry of separation. Dear friend, may you never experience it. And here was a cry of expiration. Dear friend, may you take for your own its full saving virtues and live. Amen. Any thoughts? Any questions? Yes, brother. Yes. Manifested in this. Um, that then you see in Second Corinthians five where he was in Christ, you know, reconciling the world to himself. Amen. Um, and I like this as we understand this, if we could truly comprehend the relationship between the Father and Son for eternity past with with no break, no dissension, like just perfect. Right. Amen. Um, it truly is remarkable. We have the message even these folks here, like the word of reconciliation. This is how people through Christ can be made right with God. Right. That's phenomenal. Amen. Amen.
and, and this is really, too, the, the fulfillment of his final prayer in John 17 is when he says, I've made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. That's, that was the whole purpose of him bearing that abandonment on the cross, suffering that separation, not in love, but in that intimacy, that fellowship, that that's what we can't peer so deep into because we can't look into that intra-Trinitarian love and how, how amazing and glorious that was. But we will share in that one day, and that's what he imparts to us now through faith in coming to Christ, being reconciled to him. We now know what true love is. It's, it's pure sacrifice. You know, it's not about me. It's about you. It's about him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's exactly the jeers and the, the insults that the, the people were mocking him with. He can't save himself, you know? It's great in that act, he truly was saving. Yes. Multitude. Yes. And, it, and how many of them heard that right there? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Truly, you will be with me today in paradise. Yeah. Meditate on this. Soak in this. Realize this. This is our Savior who died for us and who now intercedes for us. Amen. All right. Thank you, Lord willing. Next week, it is finished. Amen. Let's continue worship.